If you've ever been to a graduation, you've been there because there's uh, someone in your family, maybe it's your kid or maybe it's an extended family member or maybe it's a family friend that you're going to celebrate graduation with them. And the purpose of going is just to honor them, be excited for them, celebrate them. But when you go to a graduation, and whether it's the kindergarten graduation, I guess that's a thing these days, or the middle school graduation or the high school graduation, college, grad school, when you go as just the person in the seat observing, you're going to ask some questions. Let's just be honest. You're like, how long is this going to take? Right? You're looking at how many people are graduating and going, how long is this going to take? You're also asking questions like, can the guy who's pronouncing names pronounce them? Not only that, when the person gets up to speak and give the commencement address, you're going, how long are they going to take? What are they going to say? And if you're a parent or a relative of a particular kid or young adult, you're asking questions like, I hope what they say makes sense. I hope what they say imparts some wisdom as my kid transitions from this phase in life to the next phase. I hope maybe it's like your kid needs more discipline so you can see you remember the guy, the military guy, the colonel in the army, and the graduation speech that began with, hey, the best thing you can do is make your bed every day. Maybe you've got that scenario. Maybe I just call them Matthew McConaughey-isms. Like the, the, the Matthew McConaughey-isms, if you know who that is. Hey, life is just a road. You just got to keep moving. And maybe you're hoping for more than that. I hope you are. You're hoping that the speaker actually imparts something that's real and helpful to your kid, to your niece, to your nephew. I've been on the other side of that coin. I've done a few, as a youth guy, I've done a few private Christian school graduations for middle school and high school. And when you're preparing for that, you're thinking, I got 10 minutes. I got 10 minutes to impart some kind of wisdom to these kids, to these kids so that as they move from here to high school or high school to college, that they might listen for maybe one thing that I might say, that God's word in that case might say to impart some wisdom to life. Or maybe even as I've had a dad do this before when before I went up to speak at one of the graduations and he just leaned in and he said can you just teach just a few things today on how to, how my kid can't be as foolish it's interesting when you think about graduations and imparting wisdom to a graduate's life that it might go well for them if i ever get to do another baccalaureate speech or commencement speech I know my text. I know where I'm going to go in God's word. Ecclesiastes chapter 10. King Solomon, as we've been studying this fall, we've looked at the book of Ecclesiastes where Solomon, the wisest man on the planet, the wealthiest man on the planet, the man who had the most possessions and lived life to the full under the sun gives wisdom as an older sage as a sage, wise, older man looking back at his own life and saying, here's how I might do it differently. And what we've seen in the book of Ecclesiastes from Solomon is that he looked at a number of things and he says, left to themselves, possessions, money, pleasure, toil, never satisfies. We pursue those things as a life goal, but they never, ever really satisfy. But they are good gifts that God gives us 
And we put them in that perspective in order that we might please God and enjoy them. It changes the whole game. It changes the game to our money. It changes the game as we think about our possessions, about wisdom, human wisdom, about work. If we see through that lens. And so this has been his aim. And what he's really done is painted us a picture of how to live wisely. But what he's going to do today, he's going to say, look, here's how not to be an idiot. Here's how not to be a fool, because the reality of life is this. It's great to see what we should do, but oftentimes we learn best by looking at what we shouldn't do. And in chapter 10 of Ecclesiastes, Solomon's going to say, don't be a fool. Turn there with me. Ecclesiastes 10, if you need a Bible, there's one close to you. I think it's page 558. Go to about the middle of your Bible. You'll hit Psalms and just click a little bit to the right. It'll be there. If you've got a Bible in front of you, we'll have the words up here. Ecclesiastes 10, really 1 through 11. We're going to look at some bad examples, some word pictures, and we'll have to explain them a little bit. Some word pictures of what it looks like to be a fool, and then in turn, what does it look like to be wise? So let's look at this text which is effectively a grad speech to us, and there's a number of lessons we can learn from the fool to be wise. Ecclesiastes 10, and I'm just going to take a few verses at a time today, and then we'll talk about it, and then we'll keep walking through the text. And so chapter 10, verses 1 through 3, check out how this begins. Dead flies, here we go. Chapter 10, verse 1. Dead flies, here's the picture, Make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly, foolishness, outweighs wisdom and honor. Second picture, a wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. That's not a Republican tagline. Verse three, even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. So here's your first thought from verse one. Your first thought today is this, a little, just a little, just a little foolishness cancels out a whole lot of wisdom. It only takes a little bit. If you know, back in the day, a perfumer had a quite an interesting job. Someone who made ointment or perfume that smelled good. They had to have the nose of like a hound dog to smell, but they also had to effectively be like a chemist to to put compounds together in order to help people smell better. It was hard work, and it was a long process. But let's just say you had this finished perfume or this finished ointment, and flies got in that ointment. Immediately what happens? Only It only takes a few dead flies to corrupt the beautiful aroma of perfume. And he compares that and he says, here's what I'm saying with that picture. A little bit of folly coordinates with dead flies. Outweighs, cancels out wisdom and honor. That's the picture. A little foolishness cancels out a whole lot of wisdom. Listen, in the Bible, this is the way sin works, right? God is holy. We are imperfect. We are sinful. And it only takes one. It only takes one sin to separate us from God. And we're all separated from God because of our sin, to a holy God. And yet the work of the cross, Christ redeems us. It's true of sin. It's also true of life. I just want you to think about your own life or maybe the life of other people around you. And you might just assess on a human level where you say, they live most of their life 
pursuing wisdom. And yet there was one big thing that canceled it all out. I think of people even in the faith, like a Ravi Zacharias, who lived a life, who encouraged millions with the faith, and yet there was a place in his life that was hidden, and it was foolishness, and it was sin, and it cancels out other things. This is the way sin works in our life. So it only, students, listen, it only takes a little bit. It only takes a little bit of foolishness to, ca- to cancel out a whole lot of wisdom that it's exhibited in life. It corrupts the whole. That's the way sin works. But you can also look out in the world because he talks about honor in that verse too. You can look out in the world and go, that's the way the world works too. What is honored in the streets? Jake Paul. Kim Kardashian, older folks, Howard Stern. These are people who are foolish, and yet they're exalted in the streets. And yet the person who lives the quiet life, who's faithful to God, who's faithful to their family, who works hard, you don't know about it. See, wisdom is not praised in the street. Actually, today, even more so than ever, it is mocked. God's wisdom, and as we get into this, it's probably a good place to stop and go, hey, what's the difference? What's the difference between foolishness and wisdom? Foolishness is taking God's knowledge and understanding and rejecting it and not putting it to work. Even the Bible talks about a scoffer who is also a fool. He takes God's wisdom, excuse me, God's understanding and God's knowledge, and not only do they reject it, but they mock it. That's the fool. The wise is someone who takes God's knowledge and God's understanding and applies it to their lives. One of the things we've been saying all along in Ecclesiastes is wisdom is knowledge and understanding applied. We've got wisdom is putting those things to work in our lives. But wisdom is not praised in our streets. It's mocked. So here's the thing. If you're waiting on the world to look at you and go, you're really cool because you're following Jesus, it's not gonna happen. It's not what's praised, and yet your testimony and the way that you live, you will find that there are some who God is working on in their lives to go, they live differently. They live wisely. What's behind that? And it gives you opportunity to share the truth of the gospel. It's also important understanding that, that God's wisdom will never be praised out there. So oftentimes as Christians, one of the beauties of church life amongst many is that this is a place of encouragement for you. This is a place where you can come under the word and be encouraged. It's a place, a community of believers, because you're not getting any encouragement out there as you live the Christian life, and yet it ought to be true of a church that we encourage one another and build each other up, amen? To look at each other's life, to go to a brother, men, and put your arm around him and look him in the eye and say, I see God working in your life. Encouragement, ladies, with other ladies in the church, when they're having a hard time with their children, their infant children, go put your arm around them. It's worth it to encourage them and build them up. When somebody loses their job or their health is bad, to go, God is at work in your life. 
That's what it ought to look like in our church. It ought to look like that as we serve. It takes a lot of work around here to set up Sunday morning. It takes a lot of work in community groups for leaders and people to make those things work. An encouraging word goes a long way, particularly in a world that looks at the wisdom of God and says, no thanks. Who looks at the wisdom of God and mocks it. You need encouragement. You need to give encouragement. Maybe today you need to be thinking, maybe it's inside of your family. Maybe it's somebody in the church to put your arm around them and say, God's at work in you. Here's where I see it. When I was in college, I've talked about this often. My wife and I worked at a camp called T-Bar-M down the road. And if you've ever been a counselor at a camp, like all summer, you're, you're like 20 years old, and so you have a lot of energy, and yet you have kids, like seven-year-olds to 13-year-olds, which are awesome, and a lot of fun, by the way, seven to 13-year-olds, a lot of fun, a lot of opportunity to share the gospel, be excited, have fun at camp. Kids, you have fun at camp? And yet it's a lot of work, and you literally work six days a week. You have about 15 hours off, and you do it again. And so in the middle of our camp, the nurse's station, I don't know if you've ever been there, in New Braunfels, the nurse's station is right in the middle of camp. And behind it is a sanctuary, and everybody goes through that path. And I remember at camp to encourage, to encourage coaches who were making a buck 23 an hour. <laughs> coaches who were changing Sheets on beds so kids wouldn't be made fun of if they were still peeing the sheets at seven years old. Kids who were walking through life with little kids, sharing the gospel with them, doing great work. They needed encouragement. And there was a board that we have. It was a big old board. And you could handwrite, y'all, we could handwrite, handwrite notes. And you'd fold them up and put the person's name on it that you saw doing something that honored God. Whether it was loving on a kid, sharing the gospel, being fun with kids in their cabin whatever it was, and we put it on that board, and I can't tell you how life-giving it was every once in a while to see your name up there and a the coach going, God's at work. Here's what I see. We need encouragement. A little foolishness, though, cancels out a whole lot of wisdom. We need encouragement. And so let's keep moving here. Verse 2, moving right along. Look at verse 2. A wise man's heart inclines them to the right a fool's heart to the left. It's not political. If you're a lefty, no harm, no foul here. It's not about that exactly. It's something else. You see, in the Bible, the left hand particularly was unclean. It was seen as an unskilled hand. It was often in soldiers, if you were at war, for continuity, soldiers had to carry their sword in their right hands and their shield in their left. So if you're a, if you're a lefty, you're kind of hosed in this deal. So the left hand was not considered a place of skill and honor. It was considered a place of lack of skill all the way through the scriptures. And yet the right hand, the right was considered very differently. It was considered to be the place of blessing. It was considered to be the place of deliverance. It was considered to be the place of honor and skill in the Bible. So what he's saying here. This path, a man's heart inclines him, moves him toward the right, meaning a place of honor and skill, wisdom. But a fool's heart is inclined to go places that aren't good. That's what Solomon 
is saying here, and I'll, I'll give you just a couple of examples. Do you remember in, in Genesis 48? Genesis 48 is Jacob giving his 12 sons blessing. And he comes to Manasseh and Ephraim. Manasseh's the oldest, place of blessing, place of inheritance. And Ephraim's the younger. But Jacob puts his right hand on Ephraim and his left hand on Manasseh. And Joseph, the little guy, dad's favorite, says, hey, dad, you got it wrong. You need to switch, the, you need to switch them. And Joseph says, no, this is the place of blessing. Manasseh will get his, but this is the place of blessing. So the right is a place of blessing in the scripture. You see it with Jesus when he talks about the sheep and the goats and the division between heaven and hell, those who follow him and those who don't. And the sheep are on the right and the goats are on the left. The sheep, the sheep are being delivered, the right. You also see it in another text, and I want you to see this text. Psalm 16, verse 8 and 9 and verse 11. Look at it up here. This is David, and he says this. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my, what? Right hand. And if he's at my right hand, I won't be shaken. It's a place of protection. Look at verse 9. Therefore, my heart is glad. Why? Because God's protecting me. And my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. God won't abandon him. He's at his right hand. Verse 11, you make known to me, here it is, the path, the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Here's your point. In verse 2, foolishness is a dead end. But the path of wisdom leads to life. Let me ask you this morning, what path is your heart inclined toward? Is it the path of wisdom? Is it the path of foolishness and folly? And the honest truth is, let's just be honest, oftentimes in a broken world, Sinful hearts, our hearts are inclined to the left. And yet God in his spirit, by his grace, works, and we'll get to that in just a little bit. We pursue the wrong way, but Jesus, Jesus, he's at the right hand of the Father. And like David said, he gives us peace. He gives us hope. He gives us deliverance. That's the truth of the good news of the gospel. So foolishness corrupts. It's a dead end. Wisdom is the path of life. But keep looking at verse 3 here. Your next thought in verse 3 is this. Foolishness is often self-evident for everybody to see. And you got pictures in your minds of foolishness right now, don't you? It's probably not yourself. It's probably somebody else, right? Verse 3, even when the fool walks on the road, even when he's just, we can just see him, he lacks sense. You can see it. it external. He says to everyone that he is a fool. I don't think he's saying anything. I just think you see him and it's like, he's pretty foolish. Halloween. You see some tomfoolery in Halloween? I'm going to be careful here. This last week, was it Monday? When was it? Was it Monday? Yeah, Reformation. it was Reformation Day. Halloween's Monday. I was picking up my oldest out 1488. 
And we were coming back home, and his buddy with him needed to be dropped off in, uh, what's the neighborhood above Durango Creek? Help me out. Some of y'all live there. Sorry. Woodland Oaks. And so it's Halloween. I'm not thinking. Instead of going all the way down to 2978, taking a left and going in, I made the decision on Halloween night to cut through the back. To cut through the back and go through Durango Creek, like 8 o'clock. And I saw Sheridan. That was the best part about it. She lives right there where I cut through. Sorry. You can cut through my neighborhood all the time. Westwood. I live, everybody cuts through my neighborhood too. I'm cutting through there. I'm cutting through there, and it's, it's fun. I mean, it's slow, but I'm seeing these little kids and their princesses and their goblins and their Marvel characters, and it's really cool. Happy, candy, watching out for them crossing the street. I see also really fun parents, way f- more fun than I ever was, wearing pretty fun outfits. But y'all, you know where I'm going with this. Then there's, and it was in Woodlands Oaks, not Durango Creek. Just kidding. Every Halloween, there's tomfoolery out there too. There's the grown adults that use Halloween to wear nothing, as if my four-year-old needs to see that. We're not in the French Quarter, right? That is foolishness on literally the road. And that's not being judgmental, y'all. It's also not, I got to say this today, body shaming, right? That's just foolishness for everyone to see. Look over at verse 12 through 15. There's other forms of external foolishness. Words, not just the walk, but words. Look at words, verse 12 through 15, words and work. Things that everyone can see. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, meaning when you listen to someone wise speak, you just want to keep listening and you have respect and honor for that person. But the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of words, look at the beginning and the end. The beginning of the words of his mouth, that's the fool, is foolishness. So when people start talking, both all the way through from the beginning to the end is evil madness. So when when a fool speaks, you figure it out. When they speak, it's pretty clear that they're foolish sometimes. A fool also, here's the description of words, multiplies their words, meaning they just keep talking. And that's not the gift of gab, I don't think. Some of us have the gift of gab. I just think the things that are being said, is just foolishness because it doesn't make any sense. Multiplies words. Go to the Proverbs. It's all over the Proverbs. Though a man knows not what he'll be, he can tell him what he will be. So words out people as being foolish. Have you been there? I've been there. And then work. Look at it, verse 15. So walk, words, work. The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know, this is some sarcasm, for he does not know the way to the city. He's wearied by work because he can't even find his way there. He can't find his way home. He has no sense. See, foolishness is often self-evident for all to see. But the challenge is this. It's easy, isn't it? It's easy to see all the foolishness in everybody else. Walking on the street, using words. It's a little harder to see foolishness in ourselves. But we've all been there with our words. We've all been there with our work. We've all been there with the way that we walk. That's the beauty of a community of believers who love each other enough to walk next to each other, to encourage each other, build each other up, and to go, hey, let's do it a different way. Let's walk a different way. 
It's a beautiful thing. Are the words that you, that come out of your mouth, words of life, are they life-giving? Are they draining to others? So we've seen in the first three verses, and you're going, man, you've only made it through three verses. We only got about 15 minutes. I'm going to get there. We've seen what foolishness looks like in verses 1 through 3. In verses 4 through 7, how do we respond when we see foolishness out there? So 1 through 3 was our words, works, our actions. Here's what it is. Oh, by the way, you think about foolish words, I just, I just got to say one more thing. Um, the Yankees... And the Phillies bring on Houston, that's kind of foolish. I missed my point, but it's the next day. Sorry, I had to say it. I missed my cue, but that's all right. But four through seven, how do the wise respond to the fool? Specifically, the foolish person who doesn't put God's understanding and knowledge to work, who are in authority. When the fool is your boss. When the fool is a government official, this is going to get hairy right here. Verse 4, if the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place for calmness, not anger, will lay great offense to rest. I think here in verse 4, we're going to get to verse 5 and 6, but I think here it's likely the ruler, the person in charge, you could kind of translate that into your boss. Anybody? serve under other people. We all have a place where we serve under other people, whether it's kids, your parents, or parents, the, guy, the people that you work for. But how do we respond? The foolish, angry boss is verse 4, right? What does he say? This is hard. Don't leave your place. Be calm. You know those t-shirts? Be calm and whatever. Be calm, maybe, and work on. There's a new t-shirt. Be calm, maybe you need to walk out, but, but, but be calm. The Bible often talks about the importance of responding to others. How about this Solomon's proverb in, in Proverbs 15.1? Solomon says this, a soft answer turns away what? Wrath. But harsh words stirs up anger, and in this situation, even more anger. A soft word turns away wrath. In my family, we talk about this in this way. Don't get in the ring. <laughs> if somebody's already in the ring and they're angry, don't get in the ring. It's really hard not to get in the ring sometimes, isn't it? You ever been in that situation with the superior? Maybe it's your parents. Maybe it's a boss. Listen, here's what I'm not saying. Hear this. I'm not saying don't be, a, I'm not saying, and I don't think Solomon's saying be a doormat. It's not what he's saying. But how you respond is important. Wisdom in a response is not anger for anger. As hard as that may be, it's calmness. A soft answer turns away wrath. What does that look like for you? What does it look like for you, whether you're a boss or whether you're under someone, what does it look like to stay calm? What does it look like to not return anger for anger and evil 
for evil. That's difficult. We need God to be at work in that place, in the workplace, in our homes. Look, keep looking though. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun as if it were an error proceeding from the ruler. And I think in verse six, it, it changes gears. Folly is set in many high places and the rich sit in a low place. I've seen slaves on horses, princes walking on the ground like slaves. I think this is what he's saying. He's saying not only the boss who's a ruler, but also the people in high places. And when the scripture uses that, what they mean is people in political authority, government authority, people in government authority when the foolish are in power and the wise are not. And you look at that and you go, it sounds like Solomon is, is kind of classist here. Or, and that's not what's going on. When he says the rich, here's the implication in, in that time. In ancient world, the only people that were educated, that had places right or wrong, this is just a scenario, right or wrong, okay? But the people who were educated and the people who had places of power and authority were people who were rich because they could afford an education, okay? And the people who were workers did work. They didn't have that afforded to them. So it's not a commentary, all right, on whether that should be or not. It's just plainly stated. His point is this. There are often incompetent people who are in leadership. And when incompetent people, and none of us are fully competent, understand that, but when incompetent people are in leadership and they shouldn't be there, bad judgments happen and bad judgments affect everyone in a negative, bad way, right? You're like, yeah, amen. We've seen it. We see it all over the place. But here's the same point, and this is a hard one. Even when that is, what is the wise, godly response? The wise, godly response. The wise response, according to Solomon, is calmness. Let me tell you the things that make me not so calm. In Houston, we're in oil and gas here, right? Oil and gas. Now look at what's happened, and this is not a commentary on left or right. It doesn't matter to me who is in office taking one of our biggest exports and shutting it down and farming it out, and middle of the month when I gotta pay bills and there's inflation because of some of these things, I'm not calm. Are you calm? Makes me frustrated. Doesn't have to be this way. There's all kinds of laws. We can look at people and go, they're incompetent, I would do better. And then when you get in leadership, whether it's a church or government, we go, that's hard. but I don't tend to be calm. I don't tend to be wise in those scenarios. Do you? See, there's nothing Christ-like about vitriol or rage or outbursts of anger. It is the air you breathe. But as a Christian who follows Christ, it's not godly. And it's a trap for believers to fall into and look you're never going to lead somebody to Christ by convincing them of your political views. You're never going to lead somebody to Christ. I'm not either. To convince them to turn the oil and gas back on. Should that happen? I think so. That's my take. You're never going to do that. And by the way, you're, the way, there are ways in a democracy, which wasn't true back then. It was a monarchy, and they had no power. You have power. I have power, so I'm not saying don't be active. I'm not saying do nothing about it. I'm not saying don't speak about it, but I'm saying as a Christian, it matters how you do it. That's what he's saying. 
It matters. Calm. How about this one? Stay calm and vote on. Okay? If you hadn't voted, go vote tomorrow. That's one way that you make your voice heard. But we got to be careful about how we respond. We should respond. But here's the greater truth. The greater truth is this, and Solomon's been saying it all the way through Ecclesiastes. God's sovereign hand is what we have to trust in. It's God's sovereign hand. No matter what may come, no matter what we're living in, it's God's sovereign hand that you're trusting in. Not the next official. Not your boss. You're trusting in the God of heaven, in his kingdom, in his glory. And listen, when you do that, we always don't do that. When you do that, the beautiful thing is people start paying attention. How can you be so calm when the world is turning upside down and you get to say, I don't like it either, but my God is in heaven and he reigns and I trust him. Come love me, right? Amen? Can we do that? That's hard, amen? Wisdom says stay calm, take wise action, trust God. One more, eight through 11. Here's your last thought and I'll unpack it. Foolishness, looking at foolishness, right? Foolishness is self-destructive, but God's wisdom at work brings blessing. Let me help you make sense of verses 8 through 11. Let me walk back through it. 8 through 11 gives you some pictures, right? There's a person who's a ditch digger. There's a person who blows things up, walls up. There's someone who works with stone, who's a quarrier. Remember Israel, it's a place where there's lots of stone, not many trees. They had to go to Lebanon to get trees. So a lot of people working with stone, all right? There's a lot of jobs. These are jobs. Uh, split logs, so a logger who goes to Lebanon and gets the logs, an iron, a blacksmith, look at it. Then there's also the snake charmer. You're like, what do I make of all these things? What's going on here? There's two kind of trains of thought. One of them is these are all jobs, and all these jobs have risks right? All of them. That's what he's saying. Be careful. Wisdom is be careful. Don't be foolish. Be careful and trust God. That's one interpretation. I don't think that's the the right one. I think that's biblically true, but I don't think that's the right interpretation. Here's what I think is going on. If you look at the first two occupations there, the one who digs the pit, or uh, I don't call, I, I don't think they're occupations. The person who digs the pit and the person who knocks down a wall. When you see those two things in scripture, it's not an occupation. People might think it is. It's criminal activity. Remember the pit, either digging a pit or laying weight with a pit. Joseph, his brothers, that's one. There's a number of them, either digging a pit. It's criminal activity. That's folly. That's self-destructive. Do you see it? It's self-destructive because the guy who digs a pit, he's going to fall in it. And the guy who breaks into the wall, you know what's going to happen. So folly is self-destructive. But look at the other occupation. In that day, the other occupations, even the snake charmer, like they didn't have TV, they didn't have entertainment, that was entertainment. It was a legit way to make a living, okay? The other options in there, verse 9 through verse 11, the stone worker, the logger, the blacksmith, even the snake charmer, those were honest jobs. There were occupational hazards to each of those jobs. 
but working hard and being careful yielded blessing. Do you see it there? Wisdom helps one to what? Succeed. He's con- I think he's contrasting the fool who digs a pit and the person who breaks in to the people who worked hard, even though there are occupational hazards in their way. There's great wisdom. And I want to hone in on one of them, the snake charmer. You're going, man, that's weird. I think of the Middle Eastern person or the person in India that the snake charmer. You ever seen this? You ever seen the snake? Some of it's kind of sleight of hand. But the snake charmer, the snake charmer, you think it's because of the music, but it's really not. They wave this thing in front of them, and it kind of lulls them halfway to sleep like a hypnosis. And then once they do the work, once they do that work, then they can entertain and not be bit by the snake. That's a great picture of wisdom. Wisdom has to be put into action first. If you don't put it into action, folly says you're going to get bit. I want you to think about your life. You think about all the things that have happened in your life. You go, man, there were times where my foolishness caught up to me. For my foolishness, I was bit by it. See, wisdom is meant to be put to work. See, foolishness is self-destructive, but God's wisdom at work brings us blessing. I want you to think about that, especially as people who really care about the Bible, who really care about learning the truth. And listen, the first step of wisdom is learning up here, knowing, understanding God's word. We care about that deeply here at Christ Community Church, if you're new. We walk through books of the Bible. We have theology classes. When we have you know, community groups, we're in the word. We want to be a people, rightfully so, of the word, who do life in community together on mission. That's who we are. But here's one of the temptations. One of the temptations is to take great notes, which when you leave, sometimes I see them. Great notes. You got great notes from the sermon. Take great notes on Sunday morning. File that bad boy in your file and learn something. Man, I learned some new things today about Ecclesiastes 10. Awesome. That's great. But wisdom is putting that into practice. You ever had the thought or heard the phrase, I already know that. Already know the Bible. Listen, it's good to know. It's more important to have wisdom to apply the Word of God to our lives, or we will be snake bitten. And listen, I have counseled all kinds of folks on all kinds of different things. Many of them could give me 10 point sermons on marriage, 10 point sermons on how to raise kids. 10-point sermons, lessons on what does it look like to live a godly life and work, 10-point lessons on what it looks like to share my faith, to live life for Christ. You know it. I know it. It's a different thing, though, to take that knowledge and apply it. Apply it and put wisdom to work. That's what he's getting at here. So listen. 
I don't know how many graduation speeches you've been to. How many have you been to as a participant? We didn't have middle school graduations. I remember I had a high school, I had a high school graduation, a college graduation, that, and then I had a grad school graduation. And listen, there were a lot of things that were said. I don't remember much of it, unfortunately. But what I do remember was feeling like that's too much information to put into practice. <laughs> I just want to graduate today. I don't remember a lot of it, but I remember that, thinking that's too much. And maybe you look at this text and go, man, there's a lot of areas of my life where I just fall short, where I am foolish. And it's just kind of too much. Solomon's baccalaureate speech is too much for me today. I want to give you some good news. The truth of the matter is, if you look at every single one of those points I've given you on your bulletin today, we all fail at them. Every one of us in this room fail. We let ourselves be foolish. Left to ourselves, we are foolish. Our foolishness often cancels out our wisdom, doesn't it, if you're honest? It leads us to a dead end, but we keep pursuing that dead end, don't we? And sometimes people around us can see our brokenness, and they can see our foolishness. People see our anger. People can see our incompetency and leadership. We fail there, all of us, not just everybody out there. We make self-destructive decisions, and we keep coming back Left to ourselves, we fail at pursuing the path of wisdom. But if you own that and you understand that, you can understand grace. You can understand the good news of God's grace that is this. Jesus, the very wisdom of God himself, has canceled out our foolish sin. He's done it. Even just a little bit of it of it that's corrupted our relationship with God. He's healed it. And wisdom himself, Jesus, offers us a path to life when all the other roads lead to death and lead to dead ends. Jesus, the wisdom of God himself, endured angry and incompetent leaders. And he stayed calm. And he went to the cross for you and for me. Wisdom self can free you from the self-destructive path that you've set and put you on a path of satisfaction and joy and life. See, Jesus brings us wisdom that we don't have, that you could never pull off on your own. Amen? Do you know him? Do you know wisdom? Do you know Jesus would you consider him this morning? There is no path to wisdom apart from Christ. Your takeaway this morning is this. It's a long one, so listen. The road of grace that Christ has paved for you is the road less traveled, no doubt. But it's, it's the road that leads to life. Students, it's the road that leads to life. 
Christ's way is the road that leads to life. Not the tomfoolery. Not the things that you go, I need that. I want that. I want to be like my friends. It's less traveled, students. It's less traveled. But the road to life for you and joy and peace and satisfaction is the road that Christ paves for you. Mom and dad, adults, workplace, marriage, the road that leads to life is the one Christ has paved by his grace on the cross.